Let's pray. God, you are the author and you are the perfecter of our faith. Salvation finds its beginning and its end in you. Grace is ours and peace can be had because of God the Father's plan and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy is ours because salvation has come to us. Father, help us to rejoice with great joy at the fruit of salvation we see in others. God, I pray that you would illumine this text this morning, that you would um, help us to see Christ in the Scriptures. I pray that you would make it shine. God, I ask that you would let the Word wash over us this morning, cleansing us, refueling us for service in your kingdom. Enable us to see Christ in this text. Help us to see ourselves in this text and our need for Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words that I will proclaim and drive them home to our heart. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys um, this morning. Um, We're on the heels of Easter, so we have gone beyond Easter. We celebrated a Resurrection Sunday this past week. We wrapped up a series when we finished Easter Sunday. We had three weeks there where we took the beginning of April and we looked at Christ in the Old Testament. We looked at various parts of the Old Testament, looking at how the various events, places, and times pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ. So now coming on the heels of that, what we're going to do is we're going to start a new series today that, Lord willing, will run us into the beginning of July, where we're going to take these several weeks... And what we're going to do is just divide up the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the believers who were in Philippi. And our goal is to see what is God going to teach us from this from this book, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so before I came here, as as um, God was working amongst the elders, as they first contacted me, um, as we were working through the elder process and I was beginning to pray and it seemed like God was leading us. Um, to this place, and I was praying, God, what do I need to teach? What do I need to preach? Where where are you leading me as the pastor for preaching? What books do you want me to cover? What is going on in the, the heart and the world of Delta Church? And what do the Scriptures have to say about it? Where do you want me to come to these people from, from the Scriptures? And so really what God laid out for me was really something I called, um, in the back of my mind, the City Series. Um, where we were going to look at three books and we were going to really come with a plan of attack and use these three books to address this big idea of what does it look like for us as believers to be toward the city. And so we've already addressed that first book. That's what we did at the beginning of the year, right? We looked at 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. We asked, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What are the, what are the roots of the gospel? What are the foundations of the gospel? How does the gospel equip us? How does this give us our identity? How does this give us our Mission. How does this give us what we're to be about? What is the power in us proclaiming the gospel? We saw that it was the Spirit. So we, we wrapped up all of these things and said, okay, if this is what the gospel is, then what are we to do with it? Are we just to merely know what the gospel is? And we, we said, no. The argument I made was we are to be agents within the kingdom of Christ who are to be toward our city. And that's why we went and looked at the book of Jonah and spent a handful of weeks there. So it was, if, if this is true, if the gospel is true in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, what does the book of Jonah teach? 
It teaches us that we are to be toward the city. And we had two examples set before us. We saw the prophet Jonah who was called to be toward a city, but he didn't really quite live up to the way that a prophet was supposed to be toward a city. And we kept constantly going, we need one who's better than Jonah. We need the, the prophet who's greater than Jonah. What we need is Jesus. And how, how does Jesus image for us what it's like to take this gospel and to be toward the city? So we looked at the proclamation aspect of of this city series. So when we come to the book of Philippians, it's this third part in this this big grand scheme of where I thought I felt like God was leading us. And what we're going to do is look at the book of Philippians and the book of Philippians is extremely practical, practical. I think the fear that I have is sometimes what we do is we come and we can have a a sense of guilt or a sense of condemnation to where you hear me saying the things we've been saying since the beginning of the year. Like, yes, John, I I hear what the gospel is about. I I understand the gospel. The gospel has been applied to my heart. The gospel has been made true in my life. But as I'm seeking to live toward the city, I mean, if we can just have church and just be honest here, there's days and weeks and even seasons where it's just like, man, the stuff that I've heard John saying, like, I just know it's not true in my life. And I think the enemy, his desire is to come and to plant something in your ear for those days, those weeks, that, that month where it's just like, man, I'm just sort of blah. I'm not really feeling this. It's just sort of a season of dryness where I don't feel like I'm just like on the front edge of the battlefront of the gospel, taking the gospel to the city. Like I just sort of had a mundane eight to five this week. I punched my 50 hours and it was just really pretty, pretty lame. Didn't really have any extraordinary conversations. Life is just sort of humdrum right now. And I think the tendency that we have is to go, if I'm not like on the forefront of this battlefront, pressing back the darkness, taking the gospel to the city, then what we do is we set up a category in our minds for this area of life where the gospel does not speak into. And that's just simply not true. Part of the reason why we're going to the book of Philippians is because it is extremely practical and Paul roots the practicality of Philippians in this reoccurring phrase that's going to pop up over and over and it's this, in Christ. You are in Christ. We are in Christ. The gospel has come to you. It's put you in Christ. Let's, let's be in Christ as we seek for unity. Let's be in Christ as we live out a life of humility. Live your lives like you see Paul living, like you see Epaphroditus living, like you see Timothy living. They, they lived out this world of humility. They lived out what it looked like to be people who lived in unity. Look at Jesus, the ultimate example, the one who was completely humble, the one who was the son of God ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father, but who was cloaked in flesh and in his humiliation came down and died, even submitting himself to the father's will by dying on a cross, but was raised in exaltation because of his humiliation. And Paul sets all these things before the people. This is what it looks like to partner with people in the gospel. This is what it looks like to be a praying people. This is what it looks like when division comes within the church. How do you work it out? And he's constantly grounding in the gospel, in the gospel. He's setting the gospel at the center. And so what I want to do now is just for these next several weeks is just really, what does it look like just to practically, yeah, okay, you know, I went, I'm going to go to work tomorrow and I'm probably not going to be on some front lines advancing the gospel, like, you know, frontier missions out there where no one's ever heard the name of Jesus, but I'm going to be working at Wells Fargo come Monday. 
I mean, what does that, what does that look like? I'm going to be serving coffee on Monday. What does that look like? I'm going to be writing some law as a lawyer. What, what does that look like for me in the gospel in that moment to be an agent for Christ in just sort of the, the banality of life, the mundane of life? And what we have is Philippians. The book of Philippians addresses this. Now, what I like is, is this isn't just like a new concept that has been um, somehow conjured up by me. If you've ever heard of Augustine, St. Saint, Saint Augustine, um, he was was um, a Christian back in around the 400s AD. He was living in the, in the time when Rome actually was sacked. Um, the Visigoths came in, Rome crumbled. So this big Roman empire that's been around for um, a while was finally crumbled. It is no more. And about the time that that was happening, he, he wound up writing a book called The City of God. And in a very basic nutshell form of what the city of God is about is this. Basically, he comes and says, and he's writing to the believers who are Roman citizens. Listen, there's, there's really in God's grand scheme of things, what we have is these, these two categories that we can split people up to. You have... Um, The people who are citizens of the city of God, and you have people who are the citizens of the city of man. And the people who are citizens of the city of man, this is a a citizenship um, in that city, and the city of man is to be apart from Christ. So the people who are unbelievers, they're just marked by sort of the the material. They're marked by the earthly. They're marked by the worldly. They're marked by the the man-centered way of thinking. But you have citizens who are the city of God, who have a heavenly citizenship. Why? Because they are have a, a gospel that's been applied to their heart through the Spirit. They are rooted in Jesus Christ. Christ. And so these people are, yes, they are citizens of the city of man in the sense that they live in a city. The Philippians were people living in a city that was a legit Roman colony that was part of the Roman Empire. But what Augustine would say, and as Paul's going to argue here in a couple minutes, is that these people are also heavenly citizens, citizens of the city of God. They hold dual citizenship. They at simultaneously have one foot living in this realm of the heavenly. They are heavenly citizens because Christ has saved them. But at the exact same time, we cannot negate that they're just simply living life as citizens of Philippi, as citizens of the Roman Empire. And so when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, what you see him is use language like this that we'll come across later in Philippians chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter one, he uses this language. Only let your manner of life be worthy. And what's going on in that word, you can also translate like this. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. You have a citizenship. And so what he's going to press before the Philippians and what in turn he's pressing before us is this idea. You, you here in Springfield, Illinois, you are citizens of the United States who are citizens living in Springfield. But you're not to be so marked as just merely a citizen of the city of man where you are marked by just the material, marked by just the earthly, marked by just the worldly, marked by man-centered ways. But you are also to recognize that in the practical ebb and flow of life, that you are a legitimate citizen of heaven. You're a legitimate citizen of the city of God. And because of that is being true in your life, the truthfulness of your heavenly citizenship informs the way you live out your earthly citizenship in extremely practical ways. And that's exactly what we're going to see from the book of 
Philippians. So in this tension, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians as a community of believers, as a community of heavenly citizens. And he's encouraging them to live out the gospel in the present as they await for its future consummation. We're going to see some of this language when it comes to um, chapter 1, verse 6. He's going to show, listen, God's began a good work in you. You are experiencing salvation right now at this moment. You have been saved from sin and you have been saved from God's wrath because of the person and because of the work of Jesus Christ. But there's also a sense in which that salvation is, yes, already, but it is not yet. There is a future day that's coming. God will see it brought to completion in the future hope that we have that one day we will stand glorified before God, not dealing with sin anymore because of the resurrection of Christ, defeating Satan, defeating sin and defeating death, that future hope informs us now. So rest assured, no matter what comes your way, because what you're going to see is the Philippians are experiencing division in the church. They're experiencing um, um, issues of Um, persecution coming against them. There is opposition rising against them. Um, About the time that Paul is writing Philippians, Caesar Nero is coming on the scene. And a lot of people that we hold dear as the early saints of, um, of the New Testament are going to die under his hand. And so what he's talking to them is like, listen, you don't completely withdraw from this world. You are to live in this world. You are to steward the things that God's given you. But don't be so marked by the one but let the truthfulness of your citizenship that is in heaven inform how you live now. And that's really where we're going. So as we march through these, these weeks looking at, at Philippians, that's just going to be the big idea. That's going to be the, the forest view of where we're going. And we're just going to see from week to week just these practical ways that God is going to speak to us through the book of Philippians. And we're going to view it through that lens. But before Paul gets there, Paul's going to actually start addressing some of the just extreme practicality of life when you get to Romans or uh, when you get to Philippians chapter one, verse 27. But before he gets there, he does what every good letter writer does in the ancient Near East. And he starts off with his letter with an introduction, with an introduction. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at those first 11 verses there. You're going to see Paul's going to give a greeting. He's going to give a thanksgiving towards these Philippian believers. And then he's going to give us probably one of the most man, immaculate, one of the most special prayers that Paul prays on behalf of that early church. And we're going to see that in verses 9, 10, and 11. So when we step back and we look, we're going to see that there is just a theme of joy that exudes from this letter. And it's just going to pop itself up all over the place. Paul's in prison right now. He's writing from a state of being imprisoned because of his defense and because of his confession of the gospel. He is he is chained to a Roman um, prisoner or a prison guard. But in the sense of suffering, in the sense of shame that could be heaped upon him because he is in prison and he is a prisoner, he doesn't actually let that ruin his day. What he does is he comes and exudes joy. And there's this sense of this exuberant outburst of praise because as he's in prison, he's got time on his hands. And what happens is some people who have partnered with him from the beginning, those those Philippian believers, send him somebody called Epaphroditus and he brings some good news to them. And then as he in turn writes a letter so Epaphroditus can take this back to the Philippian believers, what you see is Paul just going, man. 
Like my heart beats for you. My heart yearns for you. My heart loves you. You've, you've partnered in the gospel. You've sacrificed for the gospel. You've loved for the gospel. You've given for the gospel. You've, you've bore shame and you've bore reproach on my behalf to make sure the gospel goes forward in advance. And that's exactly what this front, front part of this introduction to the letter to the Philippians is. He steps back and what he's going to do is go, man, you guys are heavenly citizens, citizens of heaven, because the gospel has been applied to your hearts. And it steps back. And what we're going to see is there's just like three categories of evidence. He goes, I see this evidence of heavenly citizenship in your life and it fires me up. It's really just going to be him going, I'm remembering you and I am excited. I am happy. I am joyous. I am rejoicing because when I step back. I see fruit in your life that you truly are heavenly citizens. So when we look at verses one and two and verse six, what we're going to see is that that Paul encourages them. He rejoices in this, that there's evidence of them being in Christ Jesus. In verses 3 through 5 and 7 through 8, we're going to see that he rejoices because he sees within them the evidence of gospel conviction. And in verses 9 through 11, that prayer at the end of this introduction, Paul's going to rejoice and he's going to pray for them because he sees evidence of gospel growth and he's going to pray exactly along those lines. So if you look in your copy of Scripture, verses 1 and 2 and 6, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right, so the history of the Philippian church is this. If you go back and you look at the book of Acts and you turn to Acts chapter 16, that was the founding start of the Philippian church. What happens? Paul, Paul and Silas, they're off on a mission, mission trip. They're working their way through what we would call Turkey. They're trying to go one direction. God shows up speaking through the Holy Spirit. And what happens is the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go this one way. But what you need to do is you need to go to Macedonia. He receives the Macedonian call. And what happens in that vision, God speaking to him, sees a man from Macedonia standing in this vision, in this dream. And then the man says this, come over to Macedonia and help us. So what does Paul do? Packs it up, goes to Macedonia. And as he leaves Troas, a town on one side of um, the sea there, and he travels over across to the other side of the sea, he hits the town of Philippi, and then he starts preaching. And when he goes into Philippi, it's a Roman colony. There are no Jewish synagogues there. So if you read Acts 16, he says, we suppose that there would probably be a place of prayer, people praying, down by the river, he goes down there. What's he find? He finds some women praying. One of them is Lydia, a God-fearer, sort of like our Ethiopian eunuch from last week. God-fearer, but not a Christ follower. So what's Paul do? He comes, preaches the gospel, and Luke records for us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, repents, believes, baptized. Then what happens is there's this little girl who's a slave girl, and she has a spirit of divination. And what happens is Paul comes and she starts annoying Paul, is the word that actually is used in Acts 16, because she keeps calling around going, these guys are servants of the true, the true God. These people are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she kept saying it and saying it and bugging them and bugging their ministry. And it says to the point where Paul got annoyed, turned around and says, you need to be gone, spirit of divination. And within that hour, she's gone. And that didn't make people happy because that young little girl was making her owners a lot of money. So what happens as what typically happens to Paul, people get fired up. 
whip them, beat them, toss them into jail. Then the next encounter in Acts 16 is what? The Philippian jailer. So it's midnight. Paul and Silas, stocks, enter part of the jail. What's going on at midnight? They're singing psalms. They're saying prayers out loud to where everybody can hear it, is what Luke records. God sends an earthquake. The jail cells open. The Philippian jailer's freaking out because that is a job where you literally could lose your head. So he decides to do it himself before someone does it to him. Paul calls out, don't do it. We're all still here. The Philippian jailer comes to that point where he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I don't think he just sort of just came up with that out of nowhere. I can guarantee you that the psalms and the hymns that Paul and Silas were singing in the midst of a Philippian jail were this. Songs about Christ. Songs about the resurrection. Songs about life that can be found. Songs about the gospel. Songs about hope. Songs about peace. And they were preaching the gospel in the midst of a crummy place. The Philippian jailer heard that and came to the point where he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they cry out, You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Philippian jailer hears it. It takes it back to the family. Family repents. They're baptized. And boom, there you go. The Philippian church has just been planted. You've got a Philippian jailer, an ex-demoniac, and a woman who's a fashionista, a seller of purple. And there you go. The church has started. And the church grows. They share the gospel. It starts building. And at some point in time, Paul takes off. And then from that point in time, everywhere they go, Paul is constantly going to be saying, listen, man, my, my heart, man, you guys are with me from the beginning. You partner with me from the beginning. Paul leaves Philippi and he goes down to Thessalonica. The Jews there in Thessalonica weren't too fired up about what Paul was doing. Start beating them, start running them out of town. The Philippians came to his aid. There was a point in time where the Jewish believers back in, um, back in uh, Jerusalem needed some aid. The Philippians were there giving. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Constantly, they're constantly sacrificing. And Paul uses this language throughout his letters. Like, these aren't people who are just, you know, like upper crust. We're not talking like upper end echelon people. These are people who are poor who are giving of themselves partnering with the gospel. And so what he does is he steps back and goes, man, I see evidence of you guys being in Christ Jesus, and this is cause for great rejoicing. So when you look at verses 1, 2, and 6, you see that phrase, in Christ Jesus. We are servants of Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding himself and he's calling back to them, listen, you weren't just doing this merely to be doing something. You are doing this because you are in Christ Jesus. You are the saints, the Haggioi. You are the holy ones and you have been made holy because you are in Christ Jesus. Grace has come to you because you are in Christ Jesus. Peace has come to your soul because you are in Christ Jesus. And the good news is, is that you did nothing to deserve this because that's where verse 6 comes along. And it stands out and he says, I'm sure of this. I have a surety. There is an assurance of my soul that as I look at you, that I see that God has began a good work in you. God was the author of your salvation. And God will be the finisher of your salvation. For it is he, God, who will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. These evidences of being in Christ Jesus led Paul to this one great assurance. God, who began a good work in them, would bring it to completion. See, Paul stepped back and he was looking at the church at Philippi. 
and the big glaring, like neon sign, like, you know, I'm thinking like an old, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? That big neon sign, that's an arrow, it's like, eat at Joe's, just flashing, ding, ding, ding. Like the big neon sign flashing over the Philippians was, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, constantly going, going, going. Paul looks at the church and he sees salvation has come there in Christ Jesus. It brings assurance to him and he presses the assurance of salvation to his hearers. It brings joy to Paul. It brings him joy. There is this sense. I mean, he's going to get to it and he's going to start explicitly using these words. But you can already get the sense where it's like welling up within him when you look at verses 1, 2, and 6. That there is a joy in his heart because salvation has come to these people. There's a sense of worship in Paul's words as he thinks about these believers. Paul cherishes these believers. And you know this simply from hearing how he talks about his friends in the gospel. So the questions I have for us are, does this fact that salvation has come to others bring you joy? I mean, are there just times where you just let your mind drift and go, man. Like, I just look at my brother, my brother Tom here, and it's like, I just thank God for him. Salvation has come to him. Salvation has come to you. And like, I don't look at you and go, oh, man, salvation's come to him. Like, now I'm going to have to be around him in church. It's not that. It's like, Yes, salvation has come to you. You are a trophy of God's grace and that is reason for me to rejoice. Do you find yourself dwelling upon the salvation of other believers and glorying in the fact that they are in Christ Jesus? See, this is an axiom. This is a truth. You will champion what you cherish. You will talk about what you love. You will. You will champion what you cherish. You will talk about what you love. And for Paul, his love for the Philippians is evident by his speech. Paul, Paul, how do you how do we know that you love the Philippians? Because he's talking about them with speech that exhibits love. Do you talk like that about other fellow believers or are you more marked by cynicism and nitpicking? See, if you love other believers, you will talk about them in a way that evidences that you have been marked by being in Christ. They are marked by being in Christ. That doesn't mean that we just overlook sin in people's lives. But if you are marked by a banner of constant cynicism and nitpicking towards other believers, I have to wonder, do you cherish God's salvation that has come to other people? We see that in Paul. For Paul, the evidence of being in Christ Jesus is cause for great rejoicing. Second, another piece of evidence that, that, that Paul sees in the Philippian believers that marks out their heavenly citizenship is this, the evidence of gospel conviction. The evidence of gospel conviction. The gospel has come to them, and it wasn't something that just came to them, and it was like a barco lounger for them. We're like, man, I'm so glad we got the gospel. You know, crank back the chair, and they're just sitting there. Then the gospel comes to them, they're like, okay, the gospel's come to us. Now, what, what do we do on behalf of the gospel? How do we take the advance of the gospel outward? What, what do we need to do? You need, you need us to give some money? Yeah, we're going to give some money. You need us to pray for you? Yes, we'll, we'll pray for you. You need us to partner with you? Yes, we'll partner with you. They were convinced that the gospel was good news and their lives evidenced that good news was applied to their heart. It wasn't just merely talk about the gospel, but it was action that came under and supported the truthfulness of their confession. So Paul is going to turn his attention to the evidence of the Philippians gospel, and he's going to see that their gospel conviction is proof of their heavenly citizenship. Because the Philippians are in Christ Jesus, it causes Paul to thank God, praying for these friends with joy. 
Every time Paul remembers in all his prayers for them, he does so with a sense of joy. When you see verses 3, 4, and 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's marked. He, Paul's a master encourager. Man, he's writing to them. He's going, man, I thank God. I explode with thankfulness. When I am praying to our God, my God, every time that I remember you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It wasn't a begrudging prayer. It wasn't like, I mean, you, you could see, he doesn't do this, but you could see how he do If he was writing this to the, to the people, the Christians who are in Corinth, you could see how he'd be like, man, I, I don't know if I thank God every time I remember you guys. And I'm not always making my prayer with joy. You guys are sort of ate up. Paul doesn't do that, but you can see how he could do it. But but what he does is he comes here in Philippians and he goes, man, I I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Then you have to ask why. Why, Paul? What is going on? What is the evidence in the Philippians lives that causes you to go? I think of you. I'm praying, and it is always with joy. And it's verse 5 there. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's that portion in verse 7. They were, they were partakers with Paul of grace, both in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Because of their partnership in the gospel, the Philippians with Paul, because they were partakers with him in his imprisonment, because they were partakers with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, Paul says, I step back and I see this as evidence of your heavenly citizenship and it causes me to explode with thankfulness to God on your behalf. Paul holds a special place in his heart for the Philippians. He assures them that it is right for him to feel this way about them. They are fellow partakers with him in God's unmerited favor. From Paul's gospel preaching in Acts 16 to that current situation of Paul's imprisonment, the Philippians had not wavered in their conviction that the gospel was worthy of life sacrifice. They're receiving the gospel message and their obedience to it are shown to be genuine by the outworking of the truth in their lives. This is the one church that was unwavering in Paul's gospel ministry, no matter where he went, no matter what happened to him, no matter the cost. Paul, seeing this evidence of heavenly citizenship in the Philippians, causes him to call God as his witness to acknowledge the deep yearning he has for these believers. That's verse 8. So when he works his way through, I'm thanking God every time I remember you. I'm making my prayer with joy. Why? Because you've partnered with me in the gospel. You've been there in my imprisonment. You've been there in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then he gets to this explosive, affectionate language for the Philippian believers. And he comes to verse 8 and he says, for God is my witness. God, I'm calling you. Witness on my behalf the yearning I have in my heart with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I love that word there that is, gives us affection. If some of you guys are King James people, it would, you, it would read like this. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Because the word there is actually splanknon, which is like the visceral, the guts. And so what was going on here was for the people in the ancient Near East of of Paul's time, we would say the heart was the seat of emotions, but for them it was the guts. So it's sort of funny, right, when we come to this, it's like how I yearn for you with like the the small intestine of Christ Jesus. And we'd be like, man, that's a little weird. I don't know, the the colon of Christ. I mean, is is that what Paul's talking about here? 
But in a sense, that's what's going on. But what he's saying here is this. He's like, there's just such a deep yearning in my guts, in my heart, the very seed of emotions, that when I think about you in the way that you have sacrificed relentlessly so that you could equip me to be a gospel messenger to people who need the gospel, it is as if Jesus Christ himself is exploding forth from Paul's heart in affection for these Philippian Believers, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's love for this church is deep and his pulse beats with the pulse of Christ and his heart throbs with the heart of Christ as though Christ himself were expressing his love through the personality of his servant. I love what Paul is saying. You confess Christ and you acted accordingly. Their talk was proved by their walk. The Philippians confession was proved by their actions. And see, this was challenging for me when I started thinking about this. Because I had asked the question, is that true of me? Is that true of us? Is that true of our church? See, the sign of our professed love for the gospel is the measure of sacrifice we're prepared to make in order to help its progress. Listen to me. The sign of our professed love for the gospel is the measure of sacrifice we are prepared to make in order to help its progress. Now, listen to me here. Are we willing to move somewhere cheaper if it means that we see God working in this area, we become a part of God's gospel advance in this area? Are we willing to sacrifice on behalf of the gospel to live closer to this church or any church, no matter city that you find yourself, but the church or you're a member of, if it comes down to, I'm about to buy a new house, I can buy a new house that is exactly what I want on the far west end, or there means I buy a house that I don't necessarily am too jazzed up about, but it puts me in the neighborhood where our church is making a gospel impact. Am I willing to make that sacrifice for the gospel? For the sacrifice of the gospel, are we willing to not take a job if it keeps us from fellowshipping with people on Sunday mornings or a community group? Are we willing to make a sacrifice for the gospel, which may mean not buying the newest gadget, not buying the newest toy, not buying the highest valuable vehicle that we could possibly get if it will prevent us from advancing the gospel? Are we willing to live in such a way where we are debt free to free up our money so we can be scandalous in our giving to make Jesus famous? Because, see, this goes back to part of what I was saying earlier. What, what I'm not trying to do is heap up on us a new law, but I'm trying to help us as I'm thinking with you because I read those questions. These questions were born out of me wrestling with this text. Going, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm willing to keep my four-year-old phone and not spend $200 on a new phone because I want that $200 to go somewhere else to advance the gospel. There's a war that rages in my heart that says, you deserve this. Spend your money. You worked for it. But Paul steps back and the Philippians are going, man, I'll do without. Paul, you need some money? Boom, take it. Advance the gospel, brother. And I think that's the challenge that comes to us. The Philippian believers embodied this way of life and it gave evidence of their heavenly citizenship. They were so convinced of the power of the gospel, they gave of themselves freely, sacrificially, scandalously, shamelessly. So what they confessed with their mouths would not be negated by their actions. Now, I'll repeat this again. What I'm not trying to do is create a new law. I'm not trying to be like the Pharisees and heap something that the scriptures aren't saying upon you. 
So if you just bought a $200 phone, don't go, don't go break it or throw it away or something. But what I'm trying to do is help us to see and help us to understand that the gospel is for salvation, but the gospel is for life. So when it comes to, man, I've had this phone for years. It's not just, well, good grief, I deserve it, so I'm going to do it to my money anyways. It's how does the gospel inform me purchasing this phone? How does the gospel inform where I buy this house? How does the gospel inform what job I take? How does the gospel inform what songs I listen? On and out we go. Because that's what the Philippians are doing. They were doing without. These were poor people doing, out with, doing without some things so that they could give sacrificially and scandalously to advance the gospel. And that's my challenge to us. Do we live here? Do we feel this tension? Are we just so, so marked where, yeah, the gospel's good news for salvation, but then we step over into this category where, but, but the gospel applies to no other part of life. It's like, man, I don't think that's what Paul's pressing on, the, pressing on us from the letter of Philippians here. See, for Paul, the evidence of gospel conviction was cause for great rejoicing. He saw that in the life of the Philippians. Thirdly, and lastly here, the evidence of gospel growth the evidence of gospel growth was cause for rejoicing in Paul's heart. That's verses 9, 9 through 11 there. It is my prayer that your love may abound. I want it to abound. You have love. I want it to abound. I want it to abound more, and I want it to abound more. I want it just to keep going and going and going, but not just love by itself. I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? Purpose, why? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, so that this will result glory and praise to God. He sees gospel growth in their life and he is encouraged by it. He sees this as evidence of their heavenly citizenship. And so what he does is he offers up one of the most beloved prayers on behalf of the church. Praying that God would continue to grow them to become more and more like Jesus. Paul prays for their love to abound. He acknowledges their love, but doesn't want their love to be disconnected. He wants them to have love mixed with knowledge and discernment. See, when you have love divorced from knowledge, then what you become is just a passionate ignoramus. Right? Man, that guy's really fired up about. What's he fired up about? Nobody knows. He's just like, wow, he's just on fire, but nobody knows why the guy's burning. He's a passionate ignoramus. He's ignorant. He's functioning without knowledge. But see, when you have love divorced from discernment, then you become a passionate fool. Because, yes, you, you might have knowledge, you know some things, but you don't know how to properly apply those things in wisdom. So it's the difference between, right, like growing up in school and you, being in the military. You could especially see this in the military. There were guys, it's the difference between book smart and street smarts, right? This guy could know everything about the book you put in front of him, but then you ask him to, like, you know, apply this in one small, simple, wise way, and the guy couldn't do it. And usually those guys that were book smart and not street smart, that were in levels of leadership, just up the ranks with sergeant, staff sergeant, first sergeant, captain, lieutenant, that kind of thing. And it's always like, oh, good grief, you know. It's like the guy can just destroy you in a book test. But when it comes to him just leading us like out of a wet paper bag, like he couldn't do it. There's just like no street smarts there. And that's what Paul's driving at here. See, he, he knows love can increase. He doesn't want love divorced from knowledge. He doesn't want love divorced from discernment. 
He wants love, the love that they have, to grow more and more. And as it grows more, and as it grows more, and as it grows more, he wants them to temper love with knowledge and to temper that love and knowledge with discernment. So what is he talking about here? When he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about spiritual wisdom found in Scripture. So love. Love passionately, love freely, let the gospel inform how you love. But as you're loving passionately and as you're loving freely, come along and temper that with knowledge, scriptural knowledge, knowledge of the Bible. Informing yourself, resting on this, letting the scriptures be the foundation upon which you rest. So be passionate, be knowledgeable about the scriptures, have a spiritual wisdom found in scripture, and then come along and and seek and ask and pray, God, help me to discern this as I'm passionate about the gospel and it's working out and in implications in this world as I'm burying my face in the scriptures and I'm soaking it in. And I'm praying through it and I'm trying to read it. God, help me to discern this so I'm not just a passionate fool, but so that I'm passionate, tempered with knowledge, but being wise as a serpent. Help me to be cunning. Help me to think. Help me to be wise. Rightly discerning the times marked by the scriptures as I seek to advance the gospel. He's praying for that for them. Paul desires this so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying that his readers would be able to see what is truly important and deserving of priority and that they would be able to make wise spiritual decisions. His desire for the Philippians was that they would be pure and blameless in their conduct so they could stand unashamedly before their Lord Paul constantly lived with that future day, that day of Christ on his mind, on which he would stand before Christ in view, and he wanted his readers to do the same. So it was this idea of he's standing back and saying, listen, there's a day of Christ that's coming. Christ is going to come back riding on the clouds. And my desire for you isn't just to live in a state of neutral, but my desire for you is to be set on fire with passion, mixed with knowledge and mixed with discernment, growing so that you become more pure, more blameless, more like Christ, more like Christ, more like Christ, more like Christ, until the day that you either die and stand before Christ or Christ comes riding back in the clouds. Because we want to prove, we want to live our lives. We want we want to stand as workmen who are approved before Christ. And that's what Paul's praying for them. Church, I want this for you. I want this for you. That's the heart of Christ. The affection that of Christ Jesus that Paul is yearning for is this. Man, I'm yearning that you would be more like Jesus as you serve coffee. You'd be more like Jesus as you write laws. That you'd be more like Jesus as you're working at Wells Fargo. That is the desire of Paul. Paul prays that in the hearts and lives of the Philippians that there may be a rich spiritual harvest such as the fruits of righteousness. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, reminding his readers that the fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. It's not something you whip up on your own, but they are found in Jesus Christ. And because they are produced by Christ, they are to be, they are to the glory and praise of God. See, a little bit earlier we said, Paul, how do we know that Paul cherishes the Philippians? It's because he loves them, the way he talks about them. You champion what you cherish. You talk about what you love, but what is equally true is that you pray for what you love. You're going to pray for what you love. Not only do you talk it off and burn somebody's ear off because you talk about it all the time, 
But then what you do is, because you care about it so much, what you actually do is you spend time in prayer for this thing that you love. And we see Paul image that for us. Verse 8, it's that explosive, affectionate love that just like, man, it's like Christ is exploding from my chest in love for you. Let me pray for you. Because I love you. Let me pray for you because I want you to grow like Jesus. You champion what you cherish, but what is equally true is that you pray for what you love. Paul loves the Philippians with the love of Christ Jesus himself, which in turn leads him to pray. So I have some questions for you, because these are the same questions that came back to me. And again, it was like a stick in the eye. What do you confess to love? I mean, what do you confess to love? I mean, it can be stuff that's just mundane as, man, I love coffee. It can be as high and lofty as I love my wife. It can be something as spiritual as I love the church. I love Jesus. I love my neighbors. I love my children. I love Dunkin' Donuts. What do you confess to love? And then the follow-up question is, and do you pray for it? So I'm not necessarily saying I pray for Dunkin' Donuts, all right? But do you confess to love the church? And the follow-up question I have for you is, do you pray for the church? Because if you're marked by a confession of loving the church, but no action of praying for the church, then I challenge you that you may not love the church as much as you love the church. If you're marked by more cynicism and nitpicking and the church is this and it stinks and I wish he would talk shorter and I wish he wouldn't talk so fast and I wish he wouldn't say this and I can't believe this person's here and how come they talk to me like that and I don't like the way he's leading this ministry. Nah, 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 nah. If you're constantly digging and grinding at the bride of Christ, then brother or sister, I confess, you don't love the church. Do you love your pastors? Do you pray for them? If you don't pray for them, I might challenge you. I don't know that your confession matches with your action. Do you love your neighbors? Are you praying for them? Do you love the lost? How many times in the past week, past month, past 33 years of my life, have I been up weeping at night over the lost? Right there, zero. But I say I love the lost. And that was the big poke in the eye for me. I would say John loves the lost. That's what I would say if I were talking to you in a conversation. But then if I look at the action that should match my confession, it's a goose egg. It's a zero. And I'm not saying up all night weeping over the lost is the, the way, only way that you can say that this is the, the, the manifestation of the action to show that you love the lost. But I'm just asking, how often are you praying for the lost? How often are you praying for your neighbors? How often are you praying for your pastors? How often are you praying for the church? How often are you praying for the gospel to take root in your children? How often are you praying for that future spouse that may be coming down the road for you that one? If, if you say you're loving these things and your desires for them, are you bending your knee and submitting to God in prayer? That is the action that will come along and prove the confession. Let me end with this here, and then we'll be done. I love what is being said from Paul here to the Philippians. Because I think in a very healthy measure, it, can be really, it really can be said about our church. Delta Church, the people that I'm looking at right now, you guys who are sitting here staring at me. The measure of gratitude and explosive joy that Paul had for the Philippian believers, I can say without qualms, now maybe I haven't been here long enough, just give me some time, maybe, but I can say without qualms that I see, I feel the same way that Paul does for you guys. And I'm encouraged by you because what I see is I see that many of us confess a gospel but it's not mere confession that there is action that comes along and supports your confession. 
mean, I can tell you, man, I was at seminary and there's a lot of my buddies who are in churches pastoring right now where the people are a thorn in their side. They're not a joy to be prayed for. But that's not the case here. And I'm not, it's not just me that's on part of the pastor team, the elder team. The other elders feel this way. Paul was a master encourager. He was loving, cherishing, and praying for that which was near and dear to his heart. How are we doing in this? Are we looking around at the evidence of heavenly citizenship that we see in others and yearning for them with the affections of Jesus Christ? See, not only do we come as pastors and go, man, I see the same evidences of heavenly citizenship among my people and it's causing me to pray, but my challenge is because this this isn't just like a pastoral thing. It could be easy to step back and go, well, of course Paul was supposed to do that. He's the one who planted the church. He's the, the apostle Paul. Of course he's supposed to be marked in this way, loving and caring for other believers. But in Paul telling this to the Philippians, I think it was meant to encourage them that it is good and right for you to do the same thing as well. Are you a master encourager? The friends that you're going to go hang out with for lunch this afternoon, are you going to encourage them? Are you going to rejoice in God that salvation has come to them? Are you just going to sit on your couch this afternoon as you're reading a book or watching some sports and just this one person in the church just drifts across your mind and is it just going to be more of a good grief or is it going to be more of just a a smile coming across your face and you're like, man, man, I'm just so glad the gospel has come to them God saw fit to save this person. I love this here. I'll close out with this. The writer of the Hebrews in 13, chapter 13, verses 17 and 18 says this, and I, I believe this is true about Delta Church. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those will have to give an account. So one day, Pastor John is going to stand before Pastor Jesus, and Pastor Jesus is going to ask Pastor John, How did you care for these people that were in front of you? I'm going to have to give an account for the way I've pastored you guys. And the encouragement from the writer of the letter of Hebrews says this, You, you all, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, which I can guarantee you we are. We are praying for you regularly. We are caring for you regularly. We're keeping in contact with you regularly. We as pastors at our elder meetings, what we're doing is we're running through lists. We're we're praying over names. We're praying over situations. We're seeking to care and love for you with a heart of prayer. We're keeping watch over you because we know one day that I'm going to stand and give an account and John and Brian and Tom and Charles. And so the writer of the Hebrews says this, let them, let these pastors do this. Keep watch over your soul with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, then in turn, he says. You guys, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And that's the desire of the pastors here. That's the desire of us. That's my desire for you guys is to live life in this way. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that um, you've given us the book of Philippians. That the extreme practical nature of the gospel is this, is that it is for all areas of life. It is for salvation, and that is great news. And for that, we rejoice. But God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters that even today, that the areas that we confess to say, yeah, we love, I cherish this thing, that would be my big challenge, is that we would model our life after what Paul gave us. Paul cherished the Philippians, he prayed for them. God, help us to do the same. 
those things we say we cherish and love, that you would help us to pray for them, so proving our cherishment and our love. I love you, Christ. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.